Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. A recent study found that the average human attention span has fallen from 12 seconds 20 years ago to 6 seconds today. In light of the coronavirus, the contentious 2020 election, and now the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's not surprising that the events of the year 2000 may now seem a bit hazy. But as New York Magazine contributing editor Andrew Rice argues in his latest book, The Year That Broke America, the year 2000 marked a turning point for American politics and the fate of our nation. It was a year when the authority of our political system was undermined, when news as propaganda took hold, and cracks in the foundation of our country first appeared. It's published by Harper, and it brings Andrew Rice to our show now. Welcome. Hi, nice to, nice to talk with you again. The uh, subtitle of your book is An Immigration Crisis, a Terrorist Conspiracy, the Summer of Survivor, a Ridiculous Fake Billionaire, a Fight for Florida, and 537 Votes that Changed Everything. Uh, That's a lot, and we'll try to address pretty much all of that. There's a lot in this book. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) we should begin our discussion with the presidential election. What was the climate like at George W. Bush's inauguration? Well, you know, in fact, that's the the opening of the book is really – I tried to write it, it, it as if, uh, you know, for the first few paragraphs, it's a little unclear what, what what time period you're in because it's a it's an inauguration held under extremely tense circumstances. There are people out protesting, uh, people chanting "Hail to the thief," people decrying a, a stolen election, um, a fraudulent election, and um, of course, it t- turns out in the end that in fact it's the the election of 2000 that the that the these individuals are are protesting, not the election of 20. 2020. Um, and I later say, you know, I, I refer to the, the election of 2020 as a sort of uh, depraved reprise of the election of 2000. You know, in, in 2000, I think there were very justifiable claims that uh, the that, that individual that not every vote was counted, that that Al Gore might um, ha- had there not been uh, systemic failures in the in the electoral system, the Al Gore would have and could have been elected president. Um, you know, so 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 I don't mean to suggest that the that the justifications for the claims in 2020 and 2000 were were equally spurious. But what it, what is interesting is that you know, 2000 was really the first time in which the inauguration of a of a president in recent memory was not accepted as legitimate by a large portion of the American public. And I think you see the consequences of that coming down to this to this day, which is part of the, the really the thesis underlying the book, The Year That Broke America. Well, what were uh, the media public officials and the general public saying about that election, about the vote count in Florida and how the Supreme Court had decided? I think it's important to actually just, you know, s- sort of say exactly what happened, because, you know, 2000 is now far enough separated from us that, um, you know, younger people, people that I work with at, at New York Magazine. Well, even, you were a Cub reporter at the time. So this I was is a young reporter you. at the time. I was I was a I was a I was a youngster uh, covering the election and much else for a newspaper called The New York Observer. So uh-huh. I was just starting my career. And now now I guess I'm sort of maybe in the in the middle of my career. Uh, hopefully. Um, and, uh, and, but, but, you know, for younger people, uh, one thing that I found is that the, that the collective memory of what happened in 2000 has, has faded a great deal. So, so just very briefly, what happened was uh, the election was incredibly close, uh, so close that, 
the Electoral College came down to the results in one state. That state was the state of Florida. And in fact, after much sort of back and forth on election night, in which at one point uh, it was called, the network said that Gore had won Florida. Another point, the network said Bush had won Florida and thus the election. In the ed- at the end of the night, it came down to no one knew who had won Florida. In fact, it was it was a it was a completely unprecedented and in fact, at that time, unimaginable event where where for a long time for more than 30, for more than 30 days 36 days specifically uh no no one really knew exactly who had won the election there was a there were there were some ballots that were disputed and the and the margin uh fluctuated uh you know a little bit here and there came um, down to 537 votes in the end 537 votes although that number itself is really just kind of a you know a, a uh, you know, you could have just thrown a uh, dart at a board and mm-hmm. picked a, a number. It was really just what the count stood at when the vote counting stopped, uh, when when uh, basically the, the Supreme Court said, nope, we're not going to do any more of this recounting. Um, and the election's over and George W. Bush uh, won it. And, um, you know, the the election was decided by 537 votes and. Many people will say one vote on the Supreme Court because the ultimate uh, decision in Bush v. Gore to stop the recount uh, came down to a, a five to four decision with all the conservatives uh, on the court voting to stop the count and all the liberals, uh, including uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who, uh, you know, as, as we now know, is is uh, going to be replaced uh, at the at the end of this term. Uh, all the all those liberals uh, quite eloquently dissented in terms that sounded extreme at that point, you know, talking about the undermining of confidence in democratic institutions and the rule of law. You know, a lot of people at that time said, well, you know, you guys are really kind of overreacting about this, aren't you? Uh, this this election doesn't you know, it's just a presidential election. There's not really that much difference between Whoa. George W. Bush and Al Gore. Sure there was. Uh, but but Al, <laughs> there's a big difference between Al Gore and, and Donald Trump in the in the way they reacted to the decision that uh determined that they weren't uh, elected. I think one of the things that I came to uh, appreciate more as I wrote the book, I don't think that Al Gore is a is a is a blameless figure in, in American political history. I think, you know, there were there were things that he could have done better in the way that he uh, ran his campaign. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that I gained great appreciation for Really, in the process of writing the book, because I'm, I was writing the, the the final chapters of the book during the fall of 2020, so so really writing about the recount at the same time that uh, that 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 President Trump was was decrying uh, you know imaginary voter fraud in a, in a number of different states, and and really the the contrast between between his. Uh, win at all costs, lie if you have to throw, you know, every kind of conceivable argument at the board and even try to make up new constitutional justifications for overturning the results of the election on January 6th. You know, Al Gore actually was vice president and and presided over his own the ratification of his own loss on January 6th. So if you can imagine you know, Al Gore was in the position that Mike Pence was in and by all accounts presided over it in sort of jovial 
fashion uh his, his the the ratification of his own loss now he fought very hard up until the moment that the supreme court decided it wasn't that he didn't want to be president but there was some point at which he decided that he could he wasn't willing to push it further and he wasn't willing to undermine uh americans the american public's confidence in democratic institutions and the office of the presidency well and the democrats picked up four senate again. seats <laughs> the democrats picked up four senate seats uh, the he seemed to uh, al gore have locked up uh, most of the important states uh, but weren't there some serious problems a new president would face uh were they issues in the presidential race? The, the stock market was wobbling. North Korea was developing nuclear weapons. AIDS was still incurable. Yeah, I mean, there were these were all kinds of the the, the election of two thousand. In retrospect, was a, was an election that was enormously consequential in terms of who was elected president. Uh, that was fought over issues that largely had little or no. Um, consequence, uh, ultimately, historically. I mean, the things that, that the Bush and Gore were fighting about, it, it sounds uh, uh, it sounds ironic to say now they're really fighting about what to do with a four trillion dollar budget surplus that the, the mm-hmm. U.S. government was running. I mean, talk about good problems to have. Uh, On the know? other hand, didn't Gore say that he had a plan for climate change, although he that had, remains I mean, a serious problem even today, 20 years later? He he did. I mean, the, the, the issue was, is that he he didn't talk about that enough in the election. I and mean, a lot of his advisors thought that, you know, had he talked about that more, had he shown that that impassioned side of himself that, you know, the, the environment was it was sort of a touchstone issue for him. He, he kind of backed away from that because of, he felt it was uh, his advisors felt that it was an issue that not, did not pull well. So there were issues that 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 were out there, you know, that that the that the presidential candidates had to would would have to address in the future. And Al Gore, I think, clearly was the candidate who even the American public agreed with his positions on issues. They just didn't really like his personality very much. He seemed like a, a know-it-all, a smarty pants. Uh, he, you know, the really the turning point in the campaign was he was ahead in the polls and he went into a, a debate with the famously went into this debate with George W. Bush and, and he sighed and interrupted and acted really, you know, a little pompous and pretentious. And, you know, the election in that time, at that time, one notable difference between today and and then is that there is a large group of sort of swing voters who could who who were okay with voting for either candidate, and would oftentimes vote on relatively superficial uh, matters. And in this in this particular case, Gore's conduct and his sort of just general demeanor was considered to be. Objectionable enough that that he that a large group of the a large portion of the American public decided, well, you know, we'd rather vote for this Bush guy. He, he doesn't seem so bad. Now, the historic I, I should we the one issue that you didn't mention that was also not hard was hardly mentioned at all in the campaign was terrorism. Um, so, you know, the, the, these debates, they they hardly mentioned the word terrorism at all during the debates, even though uh, there was a there was a significant terrorist attack in Yemen against a U.S. warship, the USS Cole, uh, on the day after a debate. Um, and even even after that, uh, the Bush and Gore hardly talked about terrorism at all. Meanwhile, as I note in the book, I mean, 
the book all takes place in Florida, really, which I refer to as the unlikely crucible of the future. It's a place where all these things are, you know, by, by historical coincidence, all these things are kind of coming together simultaneously. Uh, while well, all Florida this is going has moved on, much further to the right uh, in the year, the intervening years. It's that's that's for sure true. Um, and, you, you know, I, I talk a bit about how in 2000, um, the you know, one of the determining factors in 2000 was the, uh, you know, the Cuban community um, came out very heavily for uh, for George W. Bush. And that, you know, that was that was a time in which, um, you know, we think of, uh, you know, of, of Donald Trump's performance with Latino voters as being sort of surprising or unusual in, in 2020. But really, it happened before in 2000, where uh, Bush won uh, in Florida, largely due to the support of Latino voters. But what I was going to say is that, you know, um, while all this was going on, these this sort of substanceless 2000 election was going on, the the, the pilots of the 9-11 planes were actually training in Florida, living in Florida. They spent, you know, almost 18 months in Florida uh, learning how to fly, living on the Gulf Coast, living, you know, among Americans, interacting with people. And so a large portion of my book, you know, what one thread of the book tells the story of this incredibly important and incredibly tight presidential election. Another thread of the book talks about sort of what was going on underneath the surface and no one knew about, which would ultimately be the, the, the most significant thing to happen, you know, within the, you know, in that, in that first decade of the, of the, of the 21st century, um, if not the most significant thing to happen in recent American history, which is the S September 11th attacks, which really put the country on another path. And we'll and, get to Ziad Jara in a, a little bit. I do want to uh, stay with the election just a little sure. longer. Uh, my guest is Andrew Rice, whose latest book is The Year That Broke America. With uh, It has one of the longest subtitles ever, An Immigration <laughs> Crisis, a Terrorist Conspiracy, The Summer of Survivor, a Ridiculous Fake Billionaire, a Fight for Florida, and the 537 Votes That Changed Everything. It is published by Harper's. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, Hillary Clinton had won her race as New York Senator, but didn't Bill Clinton complain that Gore, who'd been his vice president, hadn't let him campaign in swing states? Why had Gore distanced himself from Clinton? Well, this is this is sort of one of the, you know, when I talk about what could be inter interpreted as political mistakes that Gore made that were regrettable from from the Democrats' perspective, uh, at least. Um, you know, this was probably the biggest one, which is that uh, Clinton was uh, an outgoing president was was enormously popular in the year two thousand. Um, he the, the economy was booming. Um, you know, American supremacy on the global stage was unchallenged and. You know, globalization. And was he had, and he had be, survived an impeachment. And he had survived well, and and so this is where the where the butt comes in. I mean, so so he so all of these things were working in the Democrats' favor. The thing that Gore felt was working against him was there was a general there there was still a general kind of um, odor of of disrepute uh, around around Clinton, particularly among Washington elites. 
over his uh, over the, the the Lewinsky scandal, over impeachment. Uh, Gore felt, you know, on a personal level, he felt sort of outraged by Clinton's conduct and the fact that Clinton had uh, conscripted him and many other people around him to sort of stand behind him and and vouch for him while you know while he was lying about the the his his affair with Monica Lewinsky, uh, but he also like beyond the moral level he felt that that it had, it had d- damaged him and damaged the Democrats politically to a degree that it was necessary to to repudiate and distance himself from Clinton to to play this kind of complicated uh, balancing act where he would try to take credit for the success of Clinton's economic in- initiatives and his policies that were were highly popular, but distanced himself from Clinton's personal behavior. Another interesting detail about that election wasn't Harvey Weinstein, who's now serving a 23-year prison sentence, hoping to be named the next U.S. ambassador to Israel? That is a, an interesting. Uh, that is an interesting fact that that I, I learned in the course of this book. I mean, he at this time in 2000, he was an enormously influential, not just enormously influential cultural figure, but also enormous, enormously influential as a political figure. He was one of the primary fundraisers for uh, Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign, and there's even a a, a hard to believe you, you couldn't even make it up if it weren't true scene at the end of the uh, my chapter in the election night where where uh, Harvey Weinstein and a group of people, Hollywood actors, including Uma Thurman and and others go and sort of crash the Clinton's election night party in their election suite in New York City uh, after Hillary Clinton was elected senator that year for the first time in the year 2000. And 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 they actually and Harvey and and this group of people are actually standing around commiserating with Clinton and uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton as the results in Florida come in. Um, in retrospect, it's you know it's sort of uh, very discrediting that 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 the that uh, to to the Clintons that they were so close to to Harvey Weinstein during this time period during, the, during this period when sort of everyone in in New York knew that he had heard these rumors about his conduct with women. Um, but uh, but you know in the moment Harvey was considered to be a, a really big you know power broker and you know as we say in New York a mocker and uh, and he was uh, he was a he was somebody that the the Clintons considered important. There was a third party uh, candidate as well. Pat Buchanan ran as the Reform Party's candidate in 2000. And slogans from his campaign included America first, drain the swamp, and build a wall. (laughs) Well, Well, Donald Trump was obviously paying attention. Well, and 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 rightly, I mean, we we know he was paying attention because because Donald Trump was running against him. That was the 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 historical irony, of course, here is that the Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump in two thousand were competing for the um, for the nomination of a now largely forgotten third party called the Reform Party, which dated back to the Ross Perot movement of the nineteen nineties. Um, Ross Perot. You know, F ran in ninety two and ninety six. Decided not to run again in two thousand, and 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 sort of left his party nomination up for grabs. And so a lot of people tried to tried to 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 get at 
Pat Buchanan, who had run for president as a Republican in the primaries in 92 and 96 as a as a sort of right wing populist uh, proto Trumpian figure, uh, decided to leave the Republican Party, join the Reform Party and uh, attempt, you know, attempted to, to create this third party movement that we now recognize as being uh, being Trumpist in nature. Um, he kind did of, not kind succeed. of Tea Party ish, wasn't it? Ex- yes, it was. It was a Tea Party. It was, you know, I say that you know the group of people that 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 were in the Reform Party who followed Pat Buchanan of the Reform Party, you know, in, in subsequent years we call them, you know, truthers. A lot of them were conspiracy theorists. We call them, you know, truthers or birthers or deplorables or the alt right or QAnon. You know, they involve in all these various different entities and, and and then ultimately into the Republican base uh, under Trump. The, the historical irony of this, of course, is that when Trump was running against Pappy Cannon for the Reform Party nomination as a, a, a sort of uh, he ran as a as a kind of celebrity businessman for, for president, he he attacked uh, Pat Buchanan, ironically, from from the left. He called Pat Buchanan a Hitler lover. Hmm. Uh, he he derided he, he said his, that on Chris his, Matthews show Hardball. Yeah, he 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 called them. He he talked about them. He's called Pappy Cannon supporters wacky people. Uh, of course, these were these are the very people who eventually would become his core supporters. And he and um, he eventually becomes Pappy Cannon in some ways. Yes. Well, I but mean, was I, anybody I think taking him seriously at the time? Well, he was taking him seriously. I mean, there was a big there was a big uh, debate. I think uh, public debate at that time over was was uh, was Donald Trump really serious about wanting to run for president? I mean, and, and the answer, you know, most people seem to think was um, no. I mean, he he went on Jay Leno and and they played Hail to the Chief like it was a big joke. And and he and he went out and talked with Jay Leno about you know, his, his plans for, uh, among other things, you know, his platform called for socialized medicine, <laughs> uh, one-time tax on billionaires, uh, and, and all sorts of things that, that the modern Donald Trump, the present day Donald Trump would, would, uh, completely disavow. Uh, but, but the, Largely, it was considered to be at that time sort of a joke. Uh, he was covered widely in the in in the in the press because Donald Trump was always covered widely in the press. He was always available for interviews, shall we say? Uh, but but he but it was it was the price of that coverage was always that he would be ridiculed or considered to be kind of a clown or a sideshow. Uh, he didn't really have a way to talk to his public at that time. He he didn't have an ideological platform like Pat Buchanan did, but he also didn't have a have a literal platform. He had no he had no way to communicate with the public outside of uh, outside of the the newspapers, radio interviews, uh, you know, television. Uh, the gatekeepers could could still sort of keep him keep him out and shut him down if they wanted to. And uh, so, so I think that that's you know, one lesson of this whole time period was that, you know, without without Twitter, without social media, uh, Trump's political potency is uh, much, 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 much smaller. Well, right now, I think it's something like two thirds of uh, registered Republicans still support Trump and think that he uh, the election was stolen from him. Uh, in contrast, Buchanan received fewer than 450,000 votes, just 
0.4% of the total vote. So um, was he just ahead of his time? Well, I mean, I guess that's one way to put it. Sadly, ahead of his time. Um, I think uh, I think there are, you know, different circumstances in some ways, you know, that the the uh, at at this time in 2000, globalization was largely considered to be a, a good thing. There were, there were protests uh, surrounding the WTO uh, conferences and in, uh, in, in Seattle in late 1999. Uh, but this was really just a the very beginnings of, of what we now see as a, as the kind of global backlash against uh, democracy and uh, global and, and, and free trade and uh, these various different free trade uh, agreements and treaties that uh, that that Trump and others have, have so successfully campaigned against. Um, it was also like the la- the last time at which uh, you know the American geopolitical power was sort of w- was unchallenged. I note in the book that December 31st, 1999 was the was a day that Vladimir Putin came to power in, in Russia. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, maybe we can say that 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 millennium new year when everyone kind of came together and converged and celebrated the the passage of the world from the from the 20th century into the 21st uh, ultimately in retrospect marked the high ebb of uh, uh, marked the, the apex of American power and the and the low ebb of, of Russian power. Um, but to get back to the, the Pat Buchanan point, so, you know, the, the ground wasn't wasn't as favorable to him, but also. So but, but uh, again, were they just planting the seeds for what was to follow the, the policies and messaging that were rejected then? Ideologically, I mean, I think he was he was planting the seeds for what would eventually grow into this populist movement. But we can't discount the uh, the, the historical, um, you know, unprecedented, you know, historical figure of Donald Trump and his ability to command attention and his ability to, to dominate uh, people's minds for, for better or worse. Um, that that's something that the Pat Buchanan didn't possess. Um, even if he had had Donald Trump's personality, he probably couldn't have um, dominated uh, people's uh, attention in the way that he did, in the way that Trump subsequently did in 2016, because there was not social media. There was not a way for uh, people who were shared those beliefs to communicate with each other. Uh, conspiracy theories were, although they existed, were a much more marginal thing consigned to uh, AM radio. I, I, one of the characters in my book is a, is a right-wing uh, radio talk show host uh, who was sort of a, you know, a, a conspiracy theorist. Um, but, but without the internet, those, the, that, that kind of thinking was not quite so easily amplified. Um, so I think that, I, I think that really Buchanan's performance is a is a combination is can be attributed both to to specific environmental factors. I mean, I mean political environmental factors, and and also to fundamental changes in the way uh, information is communicated. Didn't Buchanan put some of the blame for his poor poor showing on Donald Trump? He did. Well, I mean, I think you know it's fair to say that Donald Trump's continual attacks on Pat Buchanan as a Hitler lover um, hurt Pat Buchanan and 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 um, ironically Donald Trump was sort of the voice of reason in that particular campaign um, Buchanan was was a was, was sort of was was shunted aside was damaged 
politically, even from relative to his uh, to his status in in 1992 and 1996. I think that the Donald Trump's continual attacks on him and tying him to the isolationists of the 1930s. And, you know, Pat Buchanan did, helped him out a little bit himself by writing a book that attempted to rehabilitate the, uh, rehabilitate the America First movement of the 1930s. But, but nonetheless, I think Trump's attacks really uh, damaged him and, uh, and, and kept Pat Buchanan from gaining uh, momentum. But I also think that, you know, Pat Buchanan was was prohibited from participating in the presidential debates uh, in in the in the fall. Unlike Perot, he was not allowed on the debate stage, not allowed to uh, express his views to a to a national audience, and had to rely on uh, a small amount of advertising and and and, and again interviews with the with the media, um, and and the media could shut off that his access to the airwaves whenever they if they decided that he was distasteful as they did uh and it just goes to show that without uh the power of uh of of social media the leveling power of uh social media platforms the ability for anyone from from me or you to alex jones uh to 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 set up a a youtube channel and 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 spout whatever beliefs we we happen to have however uh however wrong or or uh noxious um that's that's a new thing and that's and that is i think you know i make the argument you know implicitly in the year that broke america that that was the that that was the sort of fundamental change that um was was just beginning to show evidence itself in 2000 and of course um you know over time has has become more and more a part of the way we live you're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Our alliance must remain tough in the war against global terror. That even though we've had some initial successes, um, there's still danger for countries which embrace freedom. Everybody liked him. He had a lot of friends, loved sports growing up out in western Texas. Felt pressure from the bar, said hi by his dad. The more his dad pushed, the more he rebelled. Struggled academically, but turned it around. Even made it through Yale and later Harvard. Pilot for the Texas Air National Guard. Made riches with the Rangers during oil. Went far. Alcohol I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Andrew Rice. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Year That Broke America. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and, and thank you very much. Um, one of the, the big stories, Andrew, of the time involved a five-year-old Cuban boy named Elian Gonzalez. Why did it become such a big story? Well, it became a big story because, the, the, the again, it's, you know, it's, it's been a little while. Maybe it's worth telling the story. It's, it's, can can help to understand what why it became a big one. Um, so he on, on Thanksgiving Day in 1999, a um, young boy was found gripping an inner tube um, off the coast of Florida by a pair of uh, of of uh, Floridians who had gone out for a holiday 
fishing trip. Uh, he was brought back to shore and uh, under the American policy of the time, uh, because he had, had been brought back to shore uh, and he he was deemed, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a legal that he was basically deemed a dry foot is what they called it. You know, if you made it to America as a Cuban citizen and made, made it to made it to, to dry land, you could stay in America. Uh, they had this sort of special uh, privilege status because of the relationship with Fidel Castro. And, um, and so Castro Elian, got involved, didn't he? And Castro most definitely got involved. I mean, so Elian was in in um, in Miami, staying with some relatives. His father, his mother, had died on a boat that sank uh, in the attempt to get to the uh, to in the attempt to get to Miami, along with a bunch of other uh, people who who were also attempting on a rickety boat to make it from Cuba to to to. To Florida, his father, who was still alive, uh, who was unaware that he was going to be going on this on this trip, uh, basically said, uh, "I would like him to be returned to me uh, back home in Cuba." And you know, I think most Americans, when they heard that, you know, thought, "Okay, well, you know, lucky kid, um, you know, he still has this living, um, loving father who wants to wants him to." have him back at home. Um, that's the end of the story. Well, it wasn't the end of the story because the the Cuban exile population in Miami felt very strongly that his that, that he should stay with his extended family who were um, you know part of the exile community in Cuba. It turned into a long uh, custody battle. Uh, you know, not not a traditional custody battle uh, between um, uh, a husband and wife, but rather a, a kind of international custody battle between the the Cuban population of Miami and these extended relatives of the of Elian Gonzalez that he was staying with, and the the Cuban father who was backed by. Uh, Fidel Castro, and it became a huge media sensation in the United States. There were 24-hour-a-day kind of uh, marathon uh, updates on the cable news networks. This was sort of a new thing at the time. This uh, this idea that this little um, family drama would be meriting kind of 24-hour uh, coverage from outside of the house. Uh, you know, nonetheless, it became. You know the the most talked about issue in the United States in the early months of 2000, um, and the meanwhile in Cuba, uh, Fidel Castro was leading enormous rallies of you know with thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people through the streets of Havana, uh, calling for Elian to be uh, freed from his imprisonment uh, in the United States, and so this 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 one child's fate became the fixation of of two. Nations. And a headline in the Atlantic uh, in 2001 read, Elian Gonzalez defeated Al Gore. I mean, I, you know, in an, in an election which is separated by 537 votes, you know, all, almost anything, any single factor could be said to have been determinative. But that said, Elian probably played as much or more of a role than any other factor for two reasons. One was during this whole crisis over Elian where, where the custody battle was going on in the U.S. courts. Every American politician was sort of required to take a side. Uh, Bill Clinton and Janet Reno, the attorney general at the time, 
Jenna Reno is also a major character in my book and mm-hmm. a really important historical figure that uh, I think I gained a lot of uh, interest, gained a lot of appreciation for in the course of doing the doing the book. Jenna Reno basically said the law is the law. He, need, he belongs home with his father. Um, the Republican Party pretty uniformly said he needs to stay here in the United States. Castro is a is a dictator, is a tyrant. Um, the boy should live here in freedom. And Al Gore, being Al Gore, tried to kind of have it both ways. He he, but essentially, but in the end, he he essentially uh, repudiated the Clinton administration's position. Said that Elian should stay in the United States. Um, and ultimately, what ended up happening was Janet Reno. Uh, ordered, uh, you know, an armed uh, group of uh, border patrol agents to go into the house, seize Elian by force. Thankfully, no one was injured or killed in that. But there was a famous image of a little Elian Gonzalez in the, in the arms of, uh, oh, actually one of the fishermen who had who had fished him out of the ocean. Um, you know, being uh, taken from 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 the arms of that individual by an an, an armed uh, border patrol agent. Uh, this, of course, caused huge, uh, you know, t- two things to happen. One is that Gore was, uh, you know, placed in a very embarrassing position uh, vis-a-vis the administration uh, and and looked, you know, disingenuous. It really hurt him in the polls. But secondly, it really inflamed the uh, Cuban community in Miami. Uh, made the the uh, Clinton had won Florida in 1996, in part because he had formed a kind of non-aggression pact with the with the Cuban exile community in Miami, um, and that was over as soon as as soon as the Elian raid occurred. Uh, Gore, the the Cuban community really rallied uh, against against Gore. There were there were signs, you know, uh, talking about the betrayal of Elian, you know, at at, at Bush rallies in Florida and the stretch uh, home stretch of the 2000 campaign and, you know, very, very heavy turnout in Miami, especially in Cuban precincts, certainly uh, played a determinative role in in the 2000 election, uh, especially in a case where there's only it was decided by only a small handful of votes. Other other similarities between the 2000 election and the one in 2020 are voter registration issues and voter suppression now, did that play out particularly uh, importantly in Florida, or what about nationwide? Well, it was. It, I think that really what we can say. I mean, as as a you know, as a journalist who's written about you know voter suppression issues, uh, put it to me in a couple of years ago when I when I was talking with them about it. So you can trace it all back to Florida in 2000. Uh, Florida in 2000 was uh, basically what happened was that the that the pre- that the government became the state government became totally Republican controlled in 1998 with the election of, ironically enough, Jeb Bush, uh, George W.'s brother, uh, became the governor um, around this time. There was a, a an initiative started to uh, quote unquote clean up the voter rolls, which in this case meant uh, trying to uh, remove people from the voter rolls. Many of them, uh, many disproportionately uh, black people, uh, largely on the basis of uh, this 
constitutional provision dating back to the 19th century uh, that said that anyone who had ever been convicted of a felony uh, would not be allowed to vote in the future in Florida. Um, And so they they basically, after many years of sort of indifferent enforcement of this provision, the Republicans uh, mounted a a pretty uh, a concerted effort to go through, identify people who were felons. They actually were so aggressive in it that they misidentified many people were felons. Thousands of people were misidentified and removed improperly from the voter rolls, some of whom were unable to restore their status uh, until the, after the election. Um, so that was one portion of it. There was a, you know, you can, and you can sort of see echoes at that, at the time, you know, uh, the, the Florida state government said, you know, whoops, we, we kind of made some mistakes there, but you know, it was all it was all made in good faith. Uh, you know, there were just some problems with the system and how it was implemented. But of course, in retrospect, we've now seen similar voter registration purges mounted all over. The, you know, particularly in the South and Republican-controlled states, uh, in in the years since. The the second thing that happened was that um, on election day itself, there were uh, there were massive vote breakdowns in the in the uh, in the in the in the voting system itself, uh, the actual machines where people voted. Um, and this this is what essentially became the, 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 the subject of the litigation that culminated in Bush v. Gore. But what's often forgotten is, is that the uh, first of all, the number of votes that was thrown out was absolutely enormous. Hundreds of thousands of votes actually were, were invalidated for various different reasons because of technical malfunctions for the most part. Uh, people who uh, either people who apparently didn't vote for either candidate. Um, this could often happen because there was a there was a breakdown in the equipment that didn't register the vote uh, or people who inadvertently voted for two uh, presidential candidates. And this happened most uh, uh, this happened primarily in in one county, heavily black uh, county uh, around Jacksonville, where where thousands and thousands of votes were discarded because of a deceptively designed ballot. Um, Ultimately, it all added up to uh, U.S. Civil Rights Commission investigation after the election found uh, that roughly one in seven black voters uh, had their ballots invalidated for one reason or another uh, in the election of 2000 in Florida. And that that is just an enormously uh, that's, first of all, a, a, a really staggering number. And second of all, it's a number that that, uh, you know, if you presume that most of those black voters were probably uh, Democratic voters, it's a number that, that clearly was a, uh, a determinative factor in the election. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Andrew Rice, his latest book, The Year That Broke America, published by Harper's. You mentioned uh, that your first chapter uh, takes us back to 1999 and uh, looks at the movements of a young man named Ziad Jarrah. Uh, now, he w- while government officials were very concerned about al-Qaeda, how aware was the average American of it in the year 2000? Not very. I mean, one of the things that's, that's, uh, that's interesting to, to, to go back and look at is the, the coverage of al-Qaeda in 1999-2000 um, um, and, and the um, vigorous debate that was ongoing about 
whether uh, Al Qaeda was a, a sort of pesky regional um, menace uh, that you know w- was was going to cause problems for the United States and in places like uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, but ultimately was a you know kind of a uh, a two-bit op, uh, operation, and 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 those who thought that uh, took Osama bin Laden at his word when he said that he wanted to attack the United States and its homeland, and and uh, and 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 sort of uh, strike at uh, the heart of what he called unbelief international. Um, Ironically, so, they studied how to, to fly in Florida, didn't they? Yes, and they, they did. I mean, it's the so, so what happened was is that, I mean, one of the s- s- amazing things that I found in going back and, and researching 9-11 is how much, how little I feel the actual, um, the actual, 9-11 plot, uh, how, how little I remembered of it and how little I think most people understand about how it was actually planned and plotted and carried out and who was ultimately responsible for it, which is to say that in a group of, of young men from Hamburg, Germany, um, foreign students from Hamburg, Germany, uh, went to Afghanistan in late 1999 during Ramadan. They were they were there in the camps for maybe about a month. Um, and uh, but but really a very short time. They were inducted into this, uh, you know, in, in, into Al Qaeda and and and. Uh, volunteered for this, what was called the Plains operation. Uh, but really, uh, after that, they didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with Osama bin Laden or Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's, you know, the, the, the so-called mastermind. In fact, what I found when I was uh, when I was doing my research was that, you know, I was surprised the degree to which they were kind of on their own, and they were really the ma- the true masterminds of nine eleven were the people who died on 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 nine eleven in the in the in the course of the attacks. And, and, you know, w- was the conclusion that I ultimately came to. They spent the discipline involved in their operation was, you know, I, I want to avoid like sounding as if I'm admiring of the, of, of, of them. I'm certainly not, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, it was a, there was a striking amount of organizational discipline that they showed in doing it. They, they showed up in Florida in uh, roughly May, June of 2000 and, and then spent almost the entire time, from then until the attacks, uh, learning how to fly, methodically figuring out what they needed to know in order to pull off the attacks, um, and and really not drawing attention to themselves, which was uh, pretty amazing when, when you when you think about it. I mean, Theodra, who I, I found to be the kind of the most fascinating of the of the of the nine eleven pilots, was a you know kind of a a a, a good looking uh, convivial bomb vivant from from Lebanon who had a had a girlfriend back in Germany uh, seemingly enjoyed the company of lots of young women and and during his time in Florida as well um, you know w- was was devout but like but not so um, not so so fundamentalist that uh, he didn't enjoy occasionally having a beer or uh, wasn't able to kind of you know uh, 
he was a he was a you know lived as a roommate with a bunch of German other German flight students and and no one ever suspected a thing. And well, uh, we have very little time left, and I do want to address one major issue. Yeah. Uh, you write about Chuck Harder, the right wing uh, radio talk show host, who's not a household name like Rush Limbaugh. But he referred to himself as the man who sees tomorrow. And didn't he spread fear about Y2K and Al-Qaeda? Well, he so he's he's sort of a um, a, a voice throughout the book that I that I keep mm-hmm. returning to. He was a he was an AM talk radio host who's largely forgotten now, but who expressed a lot of these views that we now can recognize as uh, populist, Trumpist, protectionist views. He kind of an um, Alex Jones of his time. He was Alex Jones before Alex Jones. And um, and he he did. He 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 wore. I mean, one of the striking things about it is, you know, his politics are you know, not my politics, but but it is striking the degree to which he uh, he warned of of many dangers that turned out to be real. He he warned of a revolt against globalization. He warned of, you know, the trade deficits and and rising Chinese economic power. He warned about Vladimir Putin and called him, a, you know, said he was a, a KGB operative who was, you know, ultimately going to be extraordinarily dangerous to the world. Um, How serious he, did the Y2 bug become well that in that particular case i mean one of the things is sort of a broken broken clock is uh you know right uh, a couple times a day but um the you know he was wrong about y2k mm-hmm. uh he but he warned very vigorously about this idea that you know there's a computer bug that was going to uh p- potentially destroy the world take down the power grid cause apocalypse he was a he was a doomsayer he's somebody who saw the the apocalypse coming in all sorts of forms and the 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 truth is is that you know he 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 saw the the dark side and everything and we now live in a time in which you know it's seemingly the dark side is uh has the upper hand so people like chuck harder uh look like prophets now who's kevin ingram and what was he arrested for Kevin Ingram was a was a a black bond trader. Um, he was a Goldman Sachs. He was one of the most um, uh, powerful and uh, successful people of color on Wall Street in the late 1990s. And he's a major character in my book because, uh, for one thing, he was involved in uh, creating the market for mortgage-backed securities, which nobody really paid much attention to at the time, but uh, ultimately ended up taking down the entire world economy in 2008. Uh, but, in, but in this year, in, in, in 1999-2000, he uh, left Deutsche Bank, where he was working, where one of his clients was actually Donald Trump, uh, went out uh, and got involved with a group of individuals in Florida who uh, were purporting – they had, you know, asked him to launder some money for them, and he – agreed and got sort of enmeshed in what turned out to be um, an ATF arms dealing sting operation uh, involving purported uh, efforts to sell armaments to the Pakistani intelligence service and the Taliban. Um, So I I spent a long time researching this this particular case. It started off as sort of like a as a as a sort of fun caper 
that, but as I got deeper into it, I, I realized more and more that, you know, not everything was what it seemed about the, about the, about the federal investigation. I don't want to give away too many uh, plot twists, but uh, let's just we say. We don't have the, the time to do any of them. In fact, we've <laughs> run out of time. I'm so right. sorry. I, I was going to ask you about the lessons we should take away from our recent history, uh, but, uh, and, and the year 2000, but uh, that's why people read books. And the book that we're talking about is The Year That Broke America, An Immigration Crisis, A Terrorist Conspiracy, The Summer of Survivor, uh, A Ridiculous Fake Billionaire, A Fight for Florida, and 537 Votes That Changed Everything, published by Harper, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, uh, by my guest Andrew Rice, a contributing editor at New York Magazine. His previous books the teeth may smile, but the heart does not forget. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to contributing producer Todd McGovern for all the work he did in preparing today's interview. And to Reggie Johnson, my audio engineer, and Fazaya Glow, my executive producer. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2. PM. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information that you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of London Lopez right now can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Year That Broke America by Andrew Rice. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you also might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do. Again, the call number is 212-209-2950. Play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we're off on Monday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday when Christiane Bird will discuss her new book, A Block in Time. Hope to see you then. Have a great weekend.